Well, so pleased to see all of you here. It's a packed uh, uh, hall. My name is Vladislav Zubok. I'm professor of history at the London School of Economics, Department of International History. And uh, also, um, I'm the head of uh, uh, Russia-EU uh, group, Russia-Ukraine and EU group, part of the Darendorf project, uh, funded by, uh, uh, by a MacArthur Foundation and uh, joined jointly with, uh, with Hertie School of Governance in Berlin. So uh, this is part of the Darendorf effort to disseminate knowledge about current affairs and uh, in particular Russia-EU relationship. And I'm really, really happy uh, to introduce to you uh, Fyodor Lukyanov, who is one of, uh, I think, eminent experts on international relations coming from Moscow. And a few words about Fyodor. We, uh, met a while ago at one of uh, summer schools uh, for um, uh, junior uh, faculty members from Russia, Ukraine, and I think we had one Armenian at that time, so it was a happy crowd, international effort. But it was a while ago, the world has changed since then. Um, Fyodor, as uh, uh, I just recently found out, graduated from Moscow University, which happens to be my alma mater as well, he uh, majored in uh, German uh, and Scandinavian uh, literature. And uh, uh, since then, he made a long way. Of course, now he wears many hats. Uh, he's the head of the Council for Foreign and Defense Policy. In Russian, it's called SWAP. Professor of the High School of Economics in Moscow. Editor-in-chief of uh, the journal called Russia in Global Affairs and also scientific director of the International Discussion Club, uh, commonly called Valdai, Valdai Forum or Valdai Club. And this is a forum where, um, as a rule, uh, President Putin and President Medvedev, when he was president, uh, made their appearances. So, uh, not, not Medvedev. Not Medvedev, okay. <laughs> Correct me next time when I'm wrong too. Um, so today, uh, today uh, the topic is, um, is formulated as back to realism, and uh, I leave it for uh, Fyodor to explain to us what is realism and what does it mean in terms of Russia-EU relationship, and uh, without further ado, the floor is yours. You, you can stand there if you like, you can sit here. And we have like uh, 50 minutes of talk, and then we'll open the, the, the floor for a question and answer session. Okay, thank you very much, uh, uh, Professor Zubok. Uh, I, I, I'm really surprised to see uh, so many people here, and uh, I, I'm sure that it not, it's not because of me, but because of real, uh, real lack of realism and real need for realism, which, which all of us feel in today's uh, international uh, relations, and especially between Russia and the uh, uh, European Union, Russia and the West. So I'm extremely glad and honored to be here. Uh, and uh, um, uh, my deepest gratitude for uh, this invitation to uh, Darendorf Forum and the LSE Ideas, to personal to Professor Zubok, whom, we, uh, whom I uh, met, as, as he mentioned, uh, four or five, five years ago. And he did not mention that that's, that summer school was uh, organized in Crimea that was at that time still wrong state uh, which it belonged to. Now it's the right state, of course, as, as we know. Yeah. 
So, but but that, that, that was very interesting school, and that was uh, quite a significant year, 2011, and to a certain extent that year marked a big change, not only uh, partly in Russian development, because uh, as some of you maybe remember, 2011 was a period, late 2011 was time for a uh, couple of very important decisions in Russian domestic policy when President or Prime Minister Putin decided to uh, be back to the position of President and uh, President Medvedev decided to to become uh, uh, prime minister and so on. And that, uh, that uh, created uh, a lot of turbulence in Russian uh, domestic development, uh, wave of uh, protest in, mostly in Moscow, a little bit in other big cities, uh, which uh, was portrayed as uh, something like an uprising of the middle class. I think five years after we can discuss what, what it was in reality, but anyway, it was a point at which uh, domestic dynamics changed because Mr. Putin was back to the position of president and the uh, uh, conclusions he made from uh, this development which uh, preceded his comeback uh, were quite important for, uh, for the development of Russia. We can discuss it in Q&A if, if you're interested, I, uh, but, but 2011 was important. 2011 was also important uh, as, a, as a benchmark in the relationship between Russia and the West because I think, at least looking from today, it's quite clear that uh, uh, that was the last, last year of, so to say, previous phase of development. Mm. At that time, we did not understand it yet, but, but now looking in retrospective, we, we, we see that 2011, when the uh, last uh, big treaty was adopted, ratified between Russia and the United States, this uh, start, new START treaty, and when uh, uh, Russia and the European Union basically ceased to discuss more or less uh, practical and substantial issue and the gradually turn, turned into exchange of uh, accusations, that was really a turning point uh, which became abs uh, absolutely obvious 2014 when, when Ukrainian crisis erupted. But anyway, uh, the topic today is about realism. So I think it's a very... Uh, very relevant place to discuss uh, both Russia-EU relationship and uh, uh, in, the, in the context of realism because uh, the uh, person uh, after whom this forum is, is called, the Lord Darendorf, was of course representative of, of, of the previous generation of political and social thinkers, those who uh, managed to combine uh, commitment to values and ideas and very practical understanding of how, how international relations work and also maybe more importantly how relations between people work. And this is, uh, in this regard, he was a very uh, uh, decent and uh, important uh, successor of Jean Monnet who, to me, was the biggest uh, mind in European history in the 20th century because he really made a miracle by uh, launching the European integration, which, which combined those two important uh, components. On the one hand, 
vision for the future, this uh, idea to overcome hostility and to create long-standing and stable peace. At the same time, extremely practical business-oriented approach, how to do it. And I think that this is exactly what uh, we don't have anymore. We don't see anybody in uh, political life worldwide, be it Europe, US, China, Russia, anywhere, who uh, would manage to, to operate in this way. Uh, I think, by the way, it's quite ironic that uh, Jean Monnet, the person who maybe deserved most of all the Nobel Peace Prize, uh, was never, never awarded this. And when the European Union uh, got this award in 2012, that was just the time when the uh, great ideas of uh, Jean Monnet became to uh, fall in deep crisis and basically collapse. So such things happen in, 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 in politics. Uh, and uh, uh, Ralph Darendorf was, as I said, in line of this tradition to me. A uh, couple of years ago, I, I found, and now I come directly to, to, the, to the issue of Russia-EU, uh, a quotation from uh, Darendorf's book from 1990, Reflections on the Revolution in Europe, where he wrote uh, the following. If there is a common European house or home to aim for, it is not Gorbachev's, but one to the west of his and successor's crumbling empire. Europe ends at the Soviet border, wherever that might be. And then he defined Europe as a political community where small and medium-sized countries try to determine their destiny together. A superpower has no place in their midst, even if it is not an economic and perhaps no longer a political giant. Reading now this quotation, I think we can, we can uh, on the one hand, many people would challenge that. On the other hand, other people like myself would say that Lord Darendorf was extremely uh, insightful uh, in understanding what the European integration was, what Russia was, or Soviet Union at that time, and if people like him would be in charge of uh, relationship between European Union and, and the Russian Federation uh, in the last uh, 25 years, maybe we could achieve something, something else. But in fact, uh, the development went uh, along other lines. 1990, when Darendorf wrote this, uh, this book, uh, where he mentioned where he described Russia and, and Europe in this way. Uh, another document, the so-called uh, Chart of Paris uh, for, the, for New Europe, was uh, developed and, and, and signed in, in, in Paris in November 1990, which was seen at that time, and by the way, seen still now, as, 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 a, fundam as a groundwork uh, for this new Europe, for this new unified Europe, uh, the document was called A New Era of Democracy, Peace, and Unity. Of course, uh, and, and recently in November last year, uh, we, those who remember this, this date could celebrate it. Uh, what went wrong? Why, why Europe 2016, uh, I mean big Europe, not, not only European Union, 
uh, doesn't look like uh, an entity living in an era of democracy, peace, and unity. Uh, I think the, the most important problem of today's development between Russia and the European Union can be found, roots of this problem can, can be found exactly in that period. Uh, the debate how this new Europe, the Europe of uh, democracy, peace, and unity should be organized was quite lively and intense uh, late uh, 80s, early 90s. Uh, and as long as the Soviet Union existed, there were at least two major ideas, maybe uh, uh, more, but two ideas which were not coinciding, but it was supposed that out of those ideas a new Europe will emerge. Uh, I think uh, European Council on Foreign Relations, the NGO, which is based here in London and several other European capitals, issued two years ago a very interesting report uh, co-authored by Mark Leonard and Ivan Krastev, The New European Disorder, where they uh, noticed a very, a very important thing, that the Charter, of new, uh, Charter for New Europe, Paris Charter for New Europe, was signed not by Russia, not by Russian Federation. It was signed by the Soviet Union, by Gorbachev. And in November 1990, I don't think that many people in, uh, in the world could envisage what would happen uh, exactly one year after, when Soviet Union simply disappeared. At that time, the Gorbachev, which was uh, basically initiator of all changes in international relations, had his own idea how this new Europe, this common European home, should be built. And this idea, which was uh, developed, of course, not by him personally, but, but by a group of uh, uh, so-called so prog progressive people inside the Central Committee of uh, Soviet Union Communist Party, was based uh, on the idea of convergency, the idea which, uh, which was quite popular in uh, uh, certain intellectual circles since the uh, 1960s, and to followers and to uh, uh, proponents of this idea belong such different people as uh, the American, Russian-American sociologist Peter M. Sorokin or uh, Nobel, Prize, uh, Nobel Prize winner, uh, Peace uh, Nobel Prize winner, uh, big dissident uh, Andrei Sakharov. Gorbachev believed, and, and his, his uh, colleagues, believed that the new Europe will end the whole new world order. Europe, which at that time was core of international system, uh, should uh, shape a model for the whole development. The new world order would emerge out of uh, rapprochement between two competing superpowers, which would uh, at the end uh, get rid of, abandon confrontation, uh, get engaged in deep uh, arms cuts, stop ideological infighting, and as a result, they will move towards each other, approach each other, and formulate a new world order, the uh, notion which was f firstly used by Gorbachev. It was then adopted by, later adopted by George H.W. Bush, but initial idea came from Gorbachev, and he 
uh, he uh, talked uh, uh, about the New World Order as early as 1986. And then he developed this idea in his book, which was published in 1987, uh, New Political Thinking for My Country and the Whole World. And this world order for him was something uh, like a joint venture between two uh, blocks, two uh, superpowers. Uh, it didn't happen for obvious reasons, because Soviet Union uh, suddenly disappeared. And after that, everything changed. Reality changed, but uh, conceptual framework did not change. And that was the key reason for why so much went wrong afterwards. Uh, on the one hand, Russia, after collapse of the Soviet Union, was in a state of quite significant conceptual confusion. Russia uh, perceived itself as successor state of the Soviet Union, and uh, the, the, the jury legally it was. At the same time, it was the country which came out from big reshuffle, collapse of the, of the Soviet Union, collapse of the empire, uh, which in our case, in Russian case, had different mechanisms and roots than, than similar processes in, in Eastern Europe, but conceptually it was not uh, uh, discussed and formulated differently than there. So Boris Yeltsin, who was leader of Russian, uh, actually secession, what happened in 1991 was Russian secession from the Soviet Union, and that destroyed Soviet Union, not democratic or nationalistic movements in Baltic states or, or uh, Ukraine or Georgia. That was Russian Federation, Russian uh, leadership, actually, Russian establishment who decided to destroy Soviet Union. Uh, and that was quite an interesting coincidence of interests between those who at that time were seen as, as ultra-conservatives and those who at that time were seen as very progressive and reform-minded. Both communists and democrats, as it was called at that time, they wanted to get rid of Gorbachev for diametrical reasons. But they wanted to get rid of Gorbachev. The old guard wanted to remove him because they believed they, they, he was crazy and he destroyed uh, the great country. The new emerging nomenclatura, Russian nomenclatura, wanted, of course, to, 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 to get power. And this uh, de facto coalition destroyed the Soviet Union. Uh, the problem was that uh, it, wasn't the, it wasn't the aim. Never, they, they never wanted to do it, actually. But they wanted to get rid of Gorbachev. And by that time, Gorbachev was embodiment of Soviet Union. That was embodiment of the so-called so -called Union Center. And when they removed him, everything did disappear. And that was, that was the reason why Russian consciousness, political consciousness, from the beginning was very much split. Successor of the Soviet Union, which means successor of the biggest, uh, of a superpower, of the uh, one of two superpowers on the one hand, and the country which adopted uh, anti-communist, nationalistic, 
pro-Western narrative, which was at the same time uh, leading, um, driving force in uh, Central and Eastern Europe and in some of uh, Soviet republics. And that, that created a, a huge, huge uh, intellectual mess at that moment, and then uh, it was not um, articulated, it was not understood at that time. We, we can see it now, looking back. And now we, we have uh, a lot of results of this. So Russia, after collapse of the Soviet Union, could not play a role which Gorbachev envisaged for the Soviet Union as one of pillars, one of sources for this new world order. Also because of domestic, internal, intellectual confusion. And even more, on the, on the side of the West, Russia was not perceived as a country post-Soviet Russia. Russia, which emerged after the collapse of the Soviet Union, was of course not perceived as a country which had right to claim uh, that it will play the same role as Gorbachev so Soviet Union wanted to play uh, when, when, he, when he signed Paris a Charter for, the, for New Europe. Uh, the idea which prevailed in, in, uh, in Europe, and that was the idea based, based on uh, uh, perception and assessment of Rolf, uh, Rolf Tarendorf, which I quoted at the beginning, was that new Europe should be or will be uh, something like an extended West. The greater Europe uh, should be EU slash NATO centric. Uh, for reasons which at that time seemed to be absolutely obvious, because what, what else? What else could happen at that, at that moment? When Soviet Union collapsed, Russia was in a terrible uh, de de demise and terrible crisis, intellectually, uh, economically, socially, politically, all possible kinds of crisis. And Russia was actually about how to survive. It was both on the, on the level of ordinary people and on the level of the statehood. Of course, who, who, who could envisage, maybe, if, if, we, if we would have people, minds like Jean Monnet, uh, somebody would, would, would come with bright ideas how to integrate this Russia on different terms than it, than it was presented. But anyway, at that moment, and it, it seemed to be uh, more, or less, more or less logical and uh, only one way how to build this greater, uh, new greater Europe. Uh, it's a long and pretty fruitless discussion why uh, this way of Europeanization of Russia failed. It was a long way of disappointments on all sides. Uh, I think the, the uh, it was not linear, so we, we said a lot of zigzags, and uh, uh, contrary to stereotypes which already emerged, uh, it was not necessarily Putin who killed this idea about uh, European Russia. If we remember President Putin during his first term, 2000 uh, uh, to 2004, uh, he was maybe the most pro-European leader of Russia ever. He was ready to discuss any, almost any uh, arrangements, including uh, Russia being institutional part of different uh, uh, European structures, 
Uh, I never heard about uh, the idea that Russia should should be should become part of of, uh, uh, of the European Union, but 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 almost. And uh, if uh, you remember the well-known formula of former head of uh, uh, European Commission Romano Prodi, uh, everything but institutions. Uh, the formula, which to me means uh, you take all regulations, but you have no right to influence them. Uh, but it was very popular and was very, very discussed in, 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 uh, in Russia in 2000s. Anyway, it didn't, it didn't happen. Uh, I think it could not happen at all because the idea again based on uh, Darendorf's formula, that Russia can become part of European community, European integration uh, area, only if it will totally distance itself from the Soviet or imperial past. Uh, maybe it would be great, but it was absolutely unrealistic to expect. And uh, one of um, key misreadings in 1990s on all sides, I don't blame uh, Europeans or Americans only, because Russian establishment, big part of Russian establishment at that time also uh, shared this idea. Uh, the idea was that Russia can become something like a very big Poland, which can, uh, with zigzags, with problems, with setbacks, but, but anyway followed the same way as countries which... Uh, uh, aspired membership in the European Union without real prospect of membership, but, but anyway, Russia will finally become a subordinated part of the big European, European sphere. Uh, it didn't happen for quite obvious reasons that Russia is not a big Poland. Russia is something else. The, super, uh, the country with not only imperial tradition, but the superpower tradition uh, cannot be expected to change that, that much uh, in, in that short period. Uh, I, I would remind you, maybe it's, it's, it's not, not that clear and not that understood in the West, this moment, 91, when Soviet Union collapsed, in the West it was perceived by many people, first, as, as collapse of another empire, which was not unique, Russia was not, Soviet Union was not the first, maybe not the last empire to collapse. Okay. UK, France, Germany, Austria, so many, uh, Turkey countries went through that. So it happens. And secondly, it was perceived, as I mentioned, uh, partly uh, as in the, same, in the same framework as Eastern and Central Europe, uh, which meant that... Uh, Russian people liberated itself from, or was liberated from communism. Uh, and again, this, this narrative was partly in use even inside, uh, inside the country. The problem is that on the, on the one hand, Russian people, maybe I'm wrong because certainly it's subjective and some other speakers would say something else, but in general, I don't believe that Russian people uh, in the 80s and 90, early 90s uh, perceived Soviet rule as, as, a, as, as, as a dictatorship imposed on Russia by somebody. 
That was uh, the late Soviet Union, which I remember very well. I went to school and then to university. was not the best place to live, but, but it was a more or less uh, functioning society and the pr prosper as prosperous as never before. Much less prosperous than, than the West, but much more prosperous than, than uh, Soviet people could um, uh, uh, remember from, from previous, previous eras. And so it was absolutely wrong to try to apply to Russia uh, this, this, this framework of liberation from communism. It was not perceived in this way. And secondly, which I think is uh, even more important and again is not well uh, understood here, the speed and the scale of collapse of status of the country was unprecedented. Empire collapsed before, but usually it took decades, sometimes centuries. Russia collapsed in, or Soviet Union, sorry, collapsed in actually three years, two years. And this, this gap still December 24th, despite the agony of Soviet regime, December 24th, 23rd, 1991, Russia was still a superpower, one of pillars of world order of the previous time. Gorbachev, a couple of days before his resignation, he still received people from the Middle East to discuss how to, or how to rearrange Israeli-Palestine um, uh, peace process and so on. It was December 23rd. December 26th. Russia was a, a poor, absolutely dysfunctional country which begged for humanitarian assistance and asked for this assistance. Uh, countries who a couple of days ago were officially, so to say, their opponents, its opponents. I maybe, uh, so I mm, exaggerate a little bit, but I do it to, to, to explain that collapse of the Soviet Union was very much underestimated in, in the West. And that, that was also one of reasons why uh, the policy afterwards was not, uh, not that successful. Anyway, uh, we can discuss later what happened in recent period, in recent years. Uh, since Vladimir Putin's come back to power 2012, the crisis of the whole model of relationship with the European Union started to be obvious and visible. The crisis started much, much, much earlier, actually. I remember in mid-2000s when, when uh, it looked very promising and uh, bureaucrats on both sides uh, prepared and signed a lot of documents I think Robert Cooper can, can remember this time as well as, as a participant on the European, European side. Uh, but even at that time, uh, bureaucrats and diplomats started to, uh, to claim that they, we, we had two summits each year and what each summit should, should manifest the progress, but what to do, what, what kind of progress to create. Uh, anyway, uh, after 2012, Russia started to seriously look for something. Vladimir Putin came back 
with a very clear understanding, and he has a very good intuition about how to, what happens in the society, what, how, uh, how, how society thinks. And he felt that the model of 2000s, the consumption model based on, not only on uh, oil prices, I think it's a simplistic view that uh, Putin's success in 2000 was uh, only due to, uh, to uh, oil and gas con conjuncture. It was more complicated. It was a recovery after collapse of 1990s, and some economic uh, mechanisms worked uh, independently from what uh, the government uh, did or, or did not. So anyway, this, this model uh, was uh, objectively exhausted. The intermezzo with uh, Dmitry Medvedev, which was quite a strange, interesting but strange period, a lot of uh, talks about modernization and new model of economy without any, any moves. And when, when Putin came back, he felt very well that society wanted something else, not only, not only economic development, which was also the question, how to uh, develop after, after this, uh, uh, in this new situation, but also something like an idea, something like a vision. And this vision was not there. Uh, if you would uh, be interested to, 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 to look for what, what Putin said and wrote 2012-2013 uh, before Ukrainian crisis, uh, you, could f you can find a lot of reflections about things which before that were never discussed uh, in Russia. Uh, values, uh, identity, ideology. Uh, not all of ideas which were discussed were very promising and encouraging because the, this, this trend for, uh, to find a conservative inspiration was quite strange to some people. But the very process of trying to put development into larger framework than just uh, prosperity and consumption. That was, I think, very, very important, important uh, step. More than that, I would say that the process which started by the end of Soviet Union uh, was never ended. I mean, the process of intellectual reflection, because the most interesting time uh, in terms of intellectual development in, in my country, to me, was just a period between 87 and 91, maybe 90. When Glasnost, the Gorbachev's openness, uh, paved way for discussion, and all intellectual energy which was suppressed during the Soviet time came, came out. And it was still not a limitation by market, by uh, political, political parties, by, by uh, spin doctors, and so on. And that was extremely interesting debate about what should happen, how how Russia, how Soviet Union at that time still should develop, what should be economic, social, intellectual uh, basics for, for, this, uh, for the future. But this process never, was never completed because Soviet Union collapsed, and in the new Russia it wasn't about reflection. It was about survival, first of all, both in individually and in terms of the country, but also uh, the time came when or people came who said, we know what to do. So we don't need to waste time and reflection anymore. 
And the uh, 1990s was period of uh, survival plus we know what to do. The result was not very fantastic. 2000 was time for recovery and uh, rest, so to say. People started to get relaxed after this 1990s collapse, uh, improved living standard, uh, more of prosperity, and so on. So not good time for, for reflection either. And then early 2000, uh, 2010s, that time came back, and Putin felt it. And this discussion, which started 2012-2013, to me was extremely important. Whatever I think about ideas which President, for example, presented, but it was extremely important thing to discuss. Unfortunately, everything was killed by Ukrainian crisis, because Ukrainian crisis removed this need for reflection. It created another framework. It created a feeling of besieged fortress, created a feeling of necessity to immediately respond to any impulses and threats from, from the outside, and so on. So this, this is another story, but, but uh, the main thing is that this discussion stopped. At the same time, uh, development around Russia, and especially in the European Union, was also extremely dynamic. And this is another part of the whole story, that the European Union, to me, failed to build up that greater Europe, which was supposed uh, late 80s, early 90s, because uh, uh, European uh, project underestimated uh, all uh, challenges of uh, multiplicity and multi-everything. Uh, by the way, in the same book, uh, Reflections on the Revolution in Europe, uh, Rolf Darendorf mentioned this problem as well. He, uh, he was very keen to discuss and to define a concept of citizenship, new European citizenship uh, designed to avoid the pitfalls of nationalism and capable of strengthening the new phenomenon of multi-ethnic societies. I think it sounds fantastically relevant today when, when the European Union as the whole world is facing this huge uh, refugee crisis and uh, I'm afraid that uh, the uh, Middle East is not the only place in the world which will produce those waves of refugees. So new Russian identity building which was attempted uh, when Putin come back, come, come to power uh, a couple of years ago, and which certainly will, will resume soon, because this, the current situation is not the final destination of Russian development. We, we watch uh, a lot of signs of very profound crisis of the model. Uh, changes are absolutely inevitable. I cannot predict what kind of changes. Changes can be different in this situation, but anyway. But the difference compared to what we had 25 years ago, 27 years ago, is that at that time Europe was seen as a model and as a paradise to, to which we should go, which is not the case anymore. And this is, I think, extremely interesting change in Russian situation because since uh, maybe 80th century, when Russia started to to get more and more European power, Russia uh, got inspiration for transformation uh, only from, from Europe. 
in, dif in different ways. In, in, in a way, Soviet Union was, was also designed and created in Europe because Marxism, as we understand, it was, <laughs> was not a Russian, Russian findings and was not a Russian idea. Now, for the first time, we face a situation when Europe is not seen as possible source for uh, ideas for change. And I think, I, I don't know what, what, what does it mean. Does it mean that, that Russia will be able to create its own framework? Maybe. Or Europe will be able to create something completely new in the process of total reshuffle of the current, current model? Maybe. Or in this new world which is emerging, which, which will be, uh, 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 for sure, much more fragmented than, uh, than we thought uh, 25 years ago, uh, maybe any kind of universal, universal and universalist models uh, are not available and are not demanded anymore, and it will be much less still interdependent, but much less normatively defined world. Uh, I think we have much more questions now than answers, and the whole world is in the process of uh, profound uh, transformation. Uh, we can, if, 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 if you are interested, we can discuss some practical issues about uh, a realistic approach between Russia and the European Union in years to come. There are things which, which I, I believe are important. Uh, for example, um, the very notion of European security, which was uh, basics for relationship between Russia or previously Soviet Union and Europe since many, many years, many decades, now should be uh, re revisited and re reformulated because European security of the Cold War time is not, not relevant anymore. The European security is so much connected to both the Middle East, unfortunately, and the greater Eurasia processes with China coming closer and closer to Europe as the new entity, as a new actor uh, in, this, in this field. Uh, we can discuss some practical issues which still link us inseparably to each other, like energy. Whatever happens to oil prices and gas prices, for a couple of decades to come, Russia and the European Union are still very much dependent and need each other. Uh, this is quite interesting, by the way, how this new mega-project discussed now between Europe and the United States, the Transatlantic Traded Investment Partnership, what kind of new framework it will create. Because if Europe will become part of the U.S.-led economic uh, alliance, that means that all ideas about greater Europe as it was seen uh, late 80s, early 90s should be at least revisited. By the way, the economic, economic development, again, in, in Europe, between Europe and, 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 and Russia, uh, cannot be discussed uh, separately from what happens in Greater Eurasia anymore, because China, again, is turning westwards, China is turning to Europe, through Russia, and uh, this uh, new Silk Road, which, which is now a topical thing both in Russia and here, uh, it is not about Central Asia, as, as some people thought initially. It's much, much bigger project, which is uh, to reshuffle uh, the whole area. Anyway, there are some uh, 
practical issues, which certainly will be discussed sooner or later, after sanctions, during sanctions, instead of sanctions. But the most important, and I, I think I can stop here, uh, 25 years after Paris Charter and after the book of, after, uh, book of uh, Ralph Darendorf about reflections on revolution in Europe, unfortunately we can say that transition failed. Transition failed in Russia. Russia failed to produce a sustainable model of development, not only economically, but most, first of all and most of all conceptually. And this transition should be revisited and maybe, re, how to say it, repassed. Re so we, we, need, we need to, unfortunately, we will need another transition. But Europe also failed. Europe failed. European Union failed to create greater Europe as it was uh, envisaged uh, by the end of, of the Cold War. Paradoxically, with all current uh, controversies, when Russia is talking about its own values, uh, about un-European nature of Russian civilization and, and, and so, when in Europe we can hear all possible uh, accusations and blames on Russia, but despite all this unpleasant uh, things, it's obvious more than, more than ever nowadays that any greater Europe is impossible without Russia, without uh, agreement, without uh, harmony between Russia and the European Union, or whatever this entity here will be called in 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 50 years from now. It's impossible. Greater Europe will never happen without Russia, and Russia will never find stable way to development without settling the relationship with Europe. I think if Rolf Darendorf would be alive today, he would certainly find new concept how to do it in a very idealistic way, but based on, on feeling and sense of realism, which was so much important for people like him. Thank you very much. Well, after this fascinating um, and um, thought-provoking presentation, let me uh, start by abusing my privileges as a chair and uh, have my two uh, questions uh, to start the discussion, and then I open the floor for, for, for the rest of you. And the first thing is about the meaning of history in all this, because in one of your recent publications, you said it's, it's uh, hopeless to go uh, down the stream of uh, history, and history only... Uh, brings all kinds of misunderstandings, uh, but you devoted quite a large chunk of your presentation to actually to history and history lessons, particularly the history uh, between uh, 87 and 91. So for you, uh, what have we to learn from history in terms of clear lessons for Russia and the West for the future? Because history is such a sticky thing, it just doesn't pass. It leaves us with 
impressions and lessons that some people say are wrong, some people say are pernicious, but they form our ideas and actions in the future. So what is your idea? And I guess it's a philosophical question. <laughs> it's about history. And uh, the second one, you keep saying about um, a new Eurasia in other publications. Now you mention a greater Europe. So as far as I understood, uh, there's a problem of our articulation both on the, on the Western side of what, how the world order will look like. The old language has exhausted itself. Europe no longer supplies us even with conceptual frameworks, right? So, but Russia looks like a little bit mute and deaf as well to me. Doesn't uh, provide any clear idea what does Russia want, actually. So Russia denies... Um, EU and uh, the possibility of creating a greater Europe by turning to, to, to the East. And at the same time, you know, Russia doesn't have a clear positive image of what the world order would look like. So can you dwell, speak a little bit more on this? Uh, about history, yes, it's very philosophical, so we can spend another two hours to, to discuss it. Briefly. And, uh, you know, certainly, certainly. people. In this room, a lot of people who have uh, a lot of fresh ideas about. Uh, I think the first, the, the, the biggest problem is it's not history. That's the pro At least in our case, in Russian case, what happened uh, late 80s, Perestroika, Gorbachev, Yeltsin, it's not history. It's today. And that's why that's why same debate is uh, being reproduced uh, over and over again. Unfortunately, this debate do not produce any conclusions which would be uh, useful for development. There are even ideas, I, I don't mean literally, but there, are, there, there is a spirit that to a certain extent we need to come back to, to the point of approximately 87 or when, when the whole opening up started and then to try to start again, start anew. It's impossible, of course, but, but uh, why not speculate about this? <clears throat> so I think he, the lesson of that, this, this period, especially the period of uh, Gorbachev, is that, uh, unfortunately, idealism per se is extremely dangerous and destructive. I think Gorbachev was, uh, oh, is, he's still alive, fortunately. Uh, he is uh, a, a very decent and, and, and very good person who believed in some ideas and he never, never understood what he did. Uh, it's not funny, I'm sorry. It's, it's, it's very tragic because, because that he, he believed he could, he could uh, uh, guide development, but then he, he, he found that, that the development guided him. And at the end, at the end, great ideas, great idealistic uh, visions, uh, have been totally discredited by result, because now in today's Russia, the today's Russia is to a certain extent opposite to Perestroika. In the Perestroika, all of us were very, very many of us were euphorically idealistic. Now there's a gloomy cynicism which 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 uh, dominates. And unfortunately, that's product of that period. Because at that time, it was too, uh, too bad uh, calculation. And, and Gorbachev, uh, Gorbachev himself, I think, never realized that. He still now, when, when you speak to him, 
uh, he used to blame everybody else. He used to blame Yeltsin. He used to blame. Some, but but the, 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 this very notion of, of the problem, lack of realism, I think he, he never grasped. Uh, that, that's one lesson. Another lesson, uh, history matters. That, that's an important lesson. Countries change, but they never change completely. And in this regard, the idea that Russia can become something totally else than it used to be was, of course, very naive, wrong, and, and erroneous. Uh, about uh, what does Russia want, a positive image, uh, you know, the, the, the question, what, what does somebody want, uh, is pretty senseless because in today's world, uh, what, what does the United States want? I, I don't understand. <laughs> what, what, what does the European Union want beyond uh, necessity to keep, keep the whole mechanism going in the situation of ev ever uh, more difficult development? And in this regard, I think Russian case is not unique at all. I remember very well, uh, that was 2009, seven years ago. I spoke for a very uh, good uh, circle of people in Berlin uh, about same topic, Russia-EU relations. And uh, I mentioned uh, in my introduction that, of course, Russia is in a very uh, shaky stage of development. It was Medvedev time. It was unclear to what, to what direction Russia would turn, pretty unpredictable and so on. But I, uh, I mentioned as well, uh, same here, because uh, looking from the outside, it seems that the European Union is uh, uh, starting to face such a big challenges that it's very impossible to predict. Reaction was a storm, because all people in the room said, what are you talking about? Yes, Russia, yes, that's correct. But we, we are fine. <laughs> and then I ask, do you, do you know exactly what will happen in five years' time? They said, yes. <laughs> we know it will be the same, but better. <laughs> that was 2009, I remember, the beginning of, it was shortly before the Greek crisis started. And, and then so, and I think that that's, that's the problem of today's development, that Russia is frequently and rightly blamed for lack of strategy. But uh, the view of President Putin, which I cannot deny, because I see a lot of grounds for that, is that strategy is impossible, no strategy at all. It, it doesn't make sense to try to formulate a strategy. Who knows, tomorrow something happens and, and all strategy should be rewritten immediately. So he is not a strat strategic thinker. He is rather a fatalist to me. Putin. He, he, believes, he believes that we cannot predict and we cannot basically guide this development, unlike Gorbachev. But in this situation, the only, the only way is to be prepared for any development, to be prepared to immediately react in, in the right way. And this is, if, if you analyze Russian, Russian uh, foreign, foreign policy uh, basically all the time when Putin was president, but especially uh, recent period, that's exactly this. Something happens and then powerful reaction. Wrong, right, that is debatable, but, but immediate reaction. And this is how he sees the world. And uh, on the one hand, it's quite, quite dangerous, quite, quite terrifying. On the other hand, 
would he ask me suddenly? <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't uh, uh, propose any strategy for him because I don't know. Oh, well, the period of uncertainty, uh, 25 years adrift. Okay, the floor is open, so please, right in the middle. Hi there, I'm Maxwell, a Master's of International Relations student. I'd sort of want to hear your opinion on a sort of pragmatic interpretation of why Europe keep, or the EU keeps Russia at arm's distance, and that's looking at sort of the series of sticky security situations Russia has been stuck and engaged in since the 1990s. I'm not talking about you know, Russia being this big threat to the European Union. I'm talking about things like these external conflicts, Abkhazia, Transnistria, um, uh, Russian support for Serbia, and then, you know, oh, in 2008, um, Georgian Georgia. invasion, and then sort of the internal, the Chechnya 1 and 2, and then the insurgency afterwards. I, I'm sort of getting a lot of the, getting this feeling that oftentimes uh, the European Union says, oh, well, it's well and good, we'll do, you know, we'll, we'll, get, we'll do economic engagement with you, but it's as soon as it gets political where there's all these sort of, there's all these sort of spikes that don't, you know, it makes them sort of keep their distance. And so I want to hear your thoughts okay. on that. Maybe we well, we can collect a few questions if there are more. My next uh, neighbor, uh, young man next to I'm looking up as well. No, okay. Um, hey, you've argued about, no, you, you uh, said about the uh, first and the second phase of development so that the 2011 was, was the breakdown. Can you sort of expand on that? What do you think? Well, one more. Uh, up, up there on the left side, yeah. The uh, European re recession, uh, how do you measure the impact on the uh, integration from the European side? Uh, how so do you measure the impact you and the, the importance? Uh, yeah, the uh, recession in Europe, uh, can you measure the impact uh. on the relationships between Europe and Russia from the European side? Thank you. Uh, why Europe keeps Russia in the arms distance? Uh, okay, it's, it's another very long discussion, but uh, to, make, to make it very primitive, I Not think... Primitive, just concise. Concise, okay. Concise and primitive. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what I mentioned in, in my introduction, that after collapse of the Soviet Union, Russia was uh, uh, very much confused. But this confusion, to me, was not the case vis-a-vis -vis Russia, was not the case on, on the Western side, because Russia, rightly or wrongly, that's another, another discussion, was seen as a defeated country. It's a country which lost the Cold War, especially in the United States, of course, because they as President Bush Sr. Uh, officially proclaimed in his uh, uh, State of the Union speech, last, uh, which he delivered, 1992, with God's help, America won the Cold War. And then he, and then he emphasized it was, not, uh, uh, it was not ended, it was won by us. And of course, in, in this framework, if Russia is seen as a defeated country, why should you uh, be interested to seriously engage 
or may, may be engaged, but not try to adapt uh, political ideas or wishes of this defeated country because, sorry, you, you lost. Maybe, maybe I'm exaggerating, but the, the feeling is like this. So the euphoria on the side of the West about the victory in the Cold War was enormous. And this uh, uh, famous uh, concept of end of history was a manifestation of that. So the, the Soviet Union uh, disappeared so easily, it's so unexpectedly to everybody, that it created a feeling that it was, was not only uh, a victory because of military uh, supremacy or economic um, uh, problems of, of the Soviet model. But it was, it was a victory because, because the West was right in general. And if the West was right, then of course it's not the good idea to listen to those who were wrong. And that, that's why, and, and that created a lot of... I, I don't think something else was possible. That's another, another, another thing. Because uh, we, we can, on the Russian side, we can be very um, uh, sad about that no one listened to uh, Russian claims about NATO enlargement and in 1990s. But to be objective, if one power collapses, some other power fills the vacuum. That, 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 that always happens. I think the, the profound mistake was Ukraine, of course, because Ukraine was always misunderstood by, by the West. And I remember, again, the, a lot of discussions in 2000s with my especially American friends uh, when uh, I said that Ukraine, don't touch Ukraine, please, with NATO membership. And they told me, oh, come on. You said the same about Poland, you said the same about Lithuania, nothing happened. And when I tried to convince, it's, it's different. It's not pro or contra, but, but it's different. It will be different. They say, oh, come on, it will be the same. We see the difference. But, 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 uh, but the NATO expansion was to me inevitable. The question that it could be done in a different way with bigger engage, engagement from uh, and, of Russia, maybe, but, but it's easy to, uh, to, to, be, uh, uh, to be smart uh, 20 years later. By the way, I don't, I don't see hear even now ideas how it could be done otherwise, because maybe <laughs> it was inevitable. Uh, as for development after 2011, I mentioned that after 2011, it was a, a short period of reflection and attempt to build up a new a new framework of Russian intellectual discourse uh, based on conservative values, but still it was about values. I think important thing, it was about values for the first time after the collapse of the Soviet Union because Gorbachev tried to implement new idea about values. He tried to adapt this so-called um, uh, <laughs> Universal, all human values, it was called in, in, in Russian Soviet discourse. Uh, then, when, when capitalism and the new Russia came, it was not about values at all. Very long time. Putin tried to re-implement value-based uh, uh, discussion, and then it was, it was unfortunately cut by, by Ukrainian crisis. In general, after 2011, it, it was beginning of general understanding that the model needs to be uh, reshuffled, needs to be renewed. Uh, in today's situation, when everything uh, 
around Russia is uh, more or less catastrophic. Of course, it's very difficult to expect any new reflection, and uh, unfortunately, what uh, th- 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 that's very poor discussion actually, even here. When, when I read in, 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 in the Financial Times that uh, the only way for Russia to survive is to re, re, uh, uh, re-implement Kudrin and Gref uh, in the government, that's strange because what, 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 what those guys who gu- guided Russian economy uh, 15 years ago or 20 years ago, what, what, what they can change. It's not about person, personalities, and more than that, I think that the model of that time has been discredited as well, not, not only Putin's uh, recent model. So th- th- this, is, uh, this is the problem, and uh, uh, consolidation in society is there. That's obvious. By which means we know, different means, but I would uh, stress another thing as well, which, which is quite important. I, I, I hear uh, most frequently that the Russian population is totally irrelevant because uh, the propaganda uh, impact made, made, made people totally uh, out of down and out of reality. Uh, I'm not a big friend of Russian propaganda at all, so I, I, I cease to watch television and I cease to appear on television, so I, I have a lot of uh, my personal uh, feelings vis-a-vis there. But I can, being relatively old, older than many of you, I remember very well Soviet propaganda in 70s and 80s, and Soviet propaganda, in fact, was much more total and much more comprehensive because at that time we did not have internet, we did not have um, satellite television. The only source for information was Soviet, official Soviet television. And that was propaganda everywhere. And people didn't believe it. <laughs> because they, they knew that as a bullshit. <laughs> now it's different. Now it's different because propaganda, whatever we think about it, but propaganda resonates with, with, with what people think and what people feel. And that's, that's the, the most important change. So the Soviet propaganda and Soviet state failed because they could not address uh, real aspirations of people. But the current Russian information environment is more or less okay, or people are more or less okay with that. It will not last forever because I think the... Now even those who are very much loyal, and I have uh, many meetings in Russia, including uh, audiences which are extremely pro-Putin and pro-government, but even they start to feel that something else is needed. But in general, I think it's very wrong to try to subscribe uh, the current mood in Russia to propaganda. It's it's uh, It's not that easy. About recession in Europe, uh, I'm not an economist myself. Russian recession is, of course, uh, uh, that's our own production. So not not even um, sanctions. Impact of sanctions, of course, is there. But uh, problems of Russian economy are due to many other reasons. Of course, the the oil prices, but, but also lack of structural reforms before. Uh, recession in Europe is rather, uh, what I mentioned in my introduction, is rather about intellectual impact, that Europe is not seen as an example anymore. That's there. As, as for economy, 
that's, we have much, much bigger problems than the European recession. All right, more questions. Um, two people in the, in the center, and maybe then I'll move to the right side and then down. Yeah. Oh, okay. Ah. <laughs> Thank you. Um, here, well, uh, I'm Antonio Figueroa. I'm a student of a master. Could you speak up a little bit? Okay, I'm a student of a master in theory and history of international relations. Uh, I wanted to ask uh, Mr. Lukinov about uh, a concept coined by Mr. Putin a couple of years ago that became quite popular in the West. That is called the concept of Russia as the bear, as the big untamed power that it's quite different uh, that the concept of how Russia was seeing itself in the West at least during the past decade. When, when and how do you think this concept was developed? In which moment do you think was this shift on the focus on how Russia should be presented themselves in, in the Western world? Okay, one more on this side and then uh, Margot Light. One person. Yeah, the first. Thank you. Um, do you see in the future, in the near future, that security will become the primary driver of EU-Russian relations? And do you envisage a return to sort of Cold War-era bipolar division and polarization in, in Europe? Thanks. Here. Margot Light, uh, Department of International Relations. Uh, thank you very much, Fyodor, for your very interesting talk. Um, you mentioned uh, uh, Putin's writings about foreign policy in the run-up to the election in 2012. Uh, one of the things he wrote about was the, uh, his, his determination to create a Eurasian Union. Uh, I know that he made a good start on that, but I wondered... Um, uh, whether it is realistic and how uh, the Ukrainian crisis and the recession has impacted on his plans. Okay. Uh, Russia as the bear, if, if I got it correctly, it's not, not a new concept at all. Very old. I think it's a concept which is at least 300 years old. Uh, Putin uh, is very... Um, uh, smart in using metaphors, and this this metaphor was one of his uh, uh, points. Uh, as for Russian Russian um, ability or willingness to present itself uh, in a positive way in uh, for the outside world, and I think it's what you also asked in the beginning. Uh, to be blunt, I don't think Russia feels it's necessary. Hmm. Because, unfortunately, the very concept of smart or soft power, which is American invention, and which, is, which used to be very discussed in Russia a couple of years ago, now it's, it's not, it's not the, the point anymore. Uh, Russian traditional thinking 
that hard power, first of all, hard power matters and prevails at the end anyway. Secondly, uh, that it's if there is an unstable and difficult environment, it's better to be feared than loved. That's what, what, what we have now. Of course, it's, it's, a, it's another long discussion, the view, worldview, and the Russian side is so much different from the worldview here. Uh, and it's not, again, it's not about propaganda only. It's about uh, completely different starting points and uh, uh, background and history. Uh, but this is, this is part of very traditional Russian perception that, of course, it's, it's fine to be, to be loved, but we can't because they hate us. <laughs> then let us be feared. Uh, whether security can become driver between EU and Russia, uh, first of all, not between EU and Russia, between NATO and Russia and Western Russia, yes, EU is not a security actor. I think yes, but in a completely different way than it was in the Cold War time, because the European security of that, that period was based on the uh, idea of uh, balance of powers between two, two military blocs, which is not relevant anymore. Europe is not a military actor. Russia is not a bloc. Uh, and real challenges for European security are so much different than 30, 35 years ago that it's simply impossible to, to apply that framework, even if on both sides I see instinctive wish to do it, but it will not work. Uh, a refugee crisis and the Middle East poses such, pose such much more bigger threat to the European security than anything Russia can do to me uh, that we, we will need to re-identify re, uh, the, the, the notion of European security. And yes, I believe that this new understanding of security will become a driver for Russian-EU relationship, but it's completely different from what we had uh, at that time. And about Eurasian Union, uh, yes, I think Eurasian Union has, or, okay, this Eurasian Union or another, another constellation in the Eurasian space has a future. More than that, it's inevitable, because the whole development, whole dynamics is moving there, uh, not so much because of Russia, but first of all because of China. China is, uh, China is uh, shifting westwards, and China is starting to organize this area, and Russia will need to be active in order to catch up. That's why I think Eurasian process, again, be it Eurasian Union as now or something else, most likely something else, that will have uh, impetus uh, to develop. Uh, Ukraine killed the previous idea of Eurasian Union because when Putin wrote uh, his famous article uh, 2011 about Eurasian integration, of course the name was misleading. It was not about Eurasian integration. It was about alternative European integration. And the whole framework was initially created to uh, find uh, something where Ukraine could be implemented and, and full, um, uh, feel, feel comfortable. Uh, it didn't happen, obviously, and will not happen anymore. And now, 
this is really Eurasian because the only direction at which it can develop is Eurasia. It's not, it's not Ukraine, it's not Moldova. It's Eurasia, it's Central Asia and, and the rest. Mongolia maybe, China. And so this will develop, absolutely, but uh, in, in, in a different format than now. Okay, we have uh, time for the last round, I would say. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Maybe you direct questions. No, 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 yes. you direct. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay. Um, well, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, of course, uh, Moscow was committed in, establish in the establishment of kinds of cooperation with the uh, United States and Europe. Of course, if you want to um, to talk in terms of realism, uh, the anarchic nature of the world affairs implies uh, a self-help character of foreign policy as well. And it is, uh, you know, the increase of powers, borders, and military capabilities. So my question is, to what extent do you think that defensive realism can be used to explain the case of Crimea? All right, Crimea. Then, okay, one more on, the, on, on this side. One more. Uh, thank you. Uh, you. You mentioned in the beginning that uh, Putin in his first term was, uh, was very pro-Western, pro and now we, we are witnessing uh, probably the lowest uh, period in relations. So my question is, can this be blamed on the West, on the fact that NATO expanded? Or is it something due to the, the Russian political elite that maybe influenced Putin in changing his mind? Or is it something completely intrinsic to Putin himself that for some reason just changed his mind about relations with the rest of the world? And then, uh, uh, given this, would, uh, would a new leader be sufficient to change in the, 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 the Russian stance towards the rest of the world? Or... Uh, the political machine is stronger, so independently uh, from who's on power, the, the, the things, things are going to remain the same. Thank you. All right. Um, okay, I guess one, one in the back. Uh, gentlemen. Yes, yes. Thank you. Uh, you talk about ideas and values, and that's where I'm focusing my question. So it is when the Spravedlivá Russia, just part, uh, just Russia party emerged, uh, there was an idea, there existed an idea of creating somehow more democratical or no, not democratical by, but a system of two parties. Do you think that there is a chance that such a system will be created, or the regime will more move to totalitarianism and more to the right? Mm -hmm. Thank you. On this happy note, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, Crimea, uh, th that's a very good question. Uh, first of all, yes, I believe in anarchic uh, nature of international system, uh, which does not mean that this, this system uh, is, uh, so to say, uh, the same all the time. And anarchic nature is now much more anarchic than uh, in times of uh, Machiavelli, because because the power, the the very notion of power is not uh, is is even very difficult to 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 formulate to identify. It's military power still matters, uh, soft power matters, economic power, 
communication, so everything, and, 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 and of course it's, it's very, I think the realism as a political um, school of thought needs a new boost because the new factor should be, should be included and, and re reassessed. As for Crimea, Crimea is just the, the ideal case because uh, maybe I'm wrong. I, I, I cannot look into Putin's eyes and, and brain as pres President Bush did. <laughs> but I'm almost sure that the main, if not the only motivation when he took this decision was not the Russian world idea, as he explained it later in his famous speech, but that was a purely defense-driven, uh, balance of power-driven fear that if Crimea, fear which was to me very well grounded, that if Crimea remains part of Ukraine under this government and this regime, the question about withdrawal of Black Sea Fleet will be put on the agenda very soon. For the new government, it was just uh, uh, one vote in the parliament, in the Verkhovna Rada, to denounce treaty, which was signed between Yanukovych and Medvedev 2002, which prolonged stay of uh, Black Sea Fleet uh, uh, in Crimea for uh, 25 years, to year 2042. If they would do it, and I, I don't see any reasons why they, did, why they wouldn't, uh, that would mean that Russian Black Sea Fleet should leave Crimea according to the initial treaty next year, 2017. For many reasons which we can discuss, it was absolutely unacceptable for, for Russia 2014. It was, by the way, uh, when Yushchenko, President Yushchenko, put this question uh, in 2006 or 7, Russia, of course, reacted in a very negative way, but it was discussed if, if they, if they uh, refuse to prolong the treaty, what, what should we do? Novorossiysk was discussed as a possible. All other places are much, much worse because the Sevastopol is an ideal place for, for the fleet. But anyway, it was discussed. It was at least theoretically uh, affordable. Not 2014 for many reasons, diff different uh, international environment and so on. But anyway, that was decision driven by this. Because I think Putin was absolutely sure that a uh, new government in Kyiv would denounce this treaty and try to push uh, the Black Sea Fleet. And that the U.S. Uh, military presence in Crimea would happen sooner or later, rather s sooner than later, inevitably, if Russia leaves this, 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 this place. Uh, if, I, it, of course it's speculation now, but I, I'm afraid that if Crimea would remain Ukrainian and this scenario would, uh, would uh, launched, we would arrive to full-scale interstate war with Ukraine. Not this hybrid war which we had, but the full-scale real war because Russia would refuse to leave and so on. So. In this situation, I don't know what maybe the decision made was, was, was more, uh, was better. Uh, 
Later on, it came with different interpretations, and uh, President Putin decided to explain this decision by something else in this speech, which was, to me, a wrong thing to do. If he would be very blunt and say, yeah, we did it because of national security, okay. Wrong, right, but when, when he started to, to uh, play with this idea about ethnic, so to say, ethnic community, that was very, that was opening up of a new, completely new charter. Uh, I think nobody believes. Hmm? I think nobody believes. <laughs> what? You mean what? In, in what, Jindu? Uh, pardon? Uh, well, nobody believed here, maybe. Uh, don't but, say it. Don't say it. But uh, first of all, not uh, don't say. I think I think it's it's uh, there are dif different people. But I, I'm not about who believed, who not believed. But but he he introduced this notion which uh, created a completely different situation in uh, dynamics in Ukraine. That that was the problem. But uh, the the very decision about Crimea was very much uh, in line with the security uh, with this. Um, uh, realist uh, understanding. And finally, uh, finally, the Just Russia Party, uh, with all respect, uh, that was not an idea. It was spin. It's, uh, it's different. It, it was not about to create a pluralistic environment. It was something else. It was the idea launched by, the, I think, uh, okay, people who who tried to manage the political engineering inside Russia. And uh, uh, sooner or later, Russian political system will change, of course, and will be uh, much more uh, flexible because it's needed even from the point of view of the government. E uh, uh, even now, the, the, uh, we, we have Duma election this year in, in September. Uh, it's, it's very complicated. It's not, so you, you mentioned uh, uh, whether Russia uh, are moving towards totalitarianism. Uh, not at all, because totalitarianism is simply impossible in today's world. It's out of question. The only, the only thing which can be applied, and we see it not only in Russia, that's manipulation. This is new form of um, autor authoritarian take on the government, this manipulation with public opinion, which we see everywhere, be it United States, Europe, or Russia in different forms. In Russia, it's maybe more blunt, but it does not mean that, 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 that here is better than there. Uh, and in this regard, yes, that, that will be new uh, models will be created, and sooner or later, maybe those models will, will uh, move towards two-party system, three-party system, I don't know. But uh, the case you mentioned, that was something completely else. Okay, I should uh, actually say that uh, this talk and uh, particularly Q&A session was very much in the spirit of not only uh, Lord Darndor, but ideas. And um, uh, um, you came to us with open mind and didn't hide anything. Oh, maybe you hit something, but you know. I did. He did. <laughs> no. He's clever. Anyway, let, uh, let, me give a, uh, let us give a round of applause to our speaker today.